This is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Welcome to another ATP Tennis Radio podcast. I'm Seb Lozier, and this week we hear from three of the top six players in the world. We're in Europe and North America on hard courts and in South America on the clay as we build towards the first Masters 1000 of the year. In Rotterdam, we're with world number six, Stefanos Tsitsipas and rising Canadian star Felix Auger-Aliassime. In New York, we'll size up all 6'11 of Riley Apelka with the help of his coach, Jay Berger. And here in Rio, where historically we're going to have electronic line calling for the very first time at an ATP clay court event, I speak with top seed and Australian Open finalist Dominic Team, among others. But where better to start this week than right at the top of the world with that man, Novak Djokovic. ATP Tour uncovered and Gabriel Clark recently caught up with the eight-time Australian Open champion. February 2020 has seen Novak Djokovic return to the top of the FedEx ATP rankings for a fifth time after capturing a record-extending eighth Australian Open title. I do have professional goals, trying to obviously get the, the historic number one, you know, that's that's other big goal and put myself in this in this position that is really good at the moment and I'm super happy with the, with the way I started the season you know it kind of sets the tone for the rest of the year Novak has made a faultless start to the season inspiring Serbia to victory at the ATP Cup one of the greatest of all time leads his country to glory and then winning that eighth Australian Open title. Whatever happens, the season is already successful. So what I can do still to improve, I, you know, there, there are many things on the tennis court that I can still improve. And, and that's something that excites me and that motivates me to go day in and day out uh, with my uh, commitments, with my practice uh, sessions, because there's always something to work on and there are always more trophies to win. Now he's closing in on Pete Sampras's 286 weeks at number one. I know it's been a great year and, and uh, obviously... <laughs> and if the 32-year-old can stay at the top until October 5th, he will break Roger Federer's record for most weeks at number one, currently standing at 310. The number one was uh, not really in the equation for me until started winning couple of Grand Slams a year, you know, with a few years in a row, that's where I felt oh, actually I can, you know, maybe challenge uh, Roger and Pete Sampras. He's done it! Victory for Djokovic! You know, I successfully finished as a year number one for several years in a row and then I guess the, I, I can't identify exactly the, the, the moment when, when I started thinking about it, but you know, uh, that's one of the biggest goals, for sure. I mean, there's no secret in that. And that'll do it. Delight for Djokovic. He clinches the year-end world number one ranking. And without a doubt, the best player 
this season. The rankings don't lie, they never do. And his consistency at the biggest tournaments is what separated Novak from the rest. Significantly, Novak believes his challenging childhood in war-torn Serbia has helped make him the champion he's become. My upbringing was, uh, you know, in Serbia during several wars during 90s and difficult time and embargo in our country where we you know, had to wait in line for bread and, and milk and water and some, you know, basic things in life, you know, these kind of things that, are, you know, make you stronger and, and make you hungrier for success, I think, in whatever you choose to do. And, and that, that probably has been my foundation, you know, the, the very fact that I came from literally nothing and, and diffi difficult life circumstances together with my family and with my people. And going back to that and, and reminding myself where I came from always inspires me, you know, motivates me to, to push even harder. It's Novak Djokovic that prevails in a Parisian classic. Emotions running oh so high for the man who will be, of course, the world number one once again. So that, that's, that's probably one of the reasons why I, I managed to, to find that extra gear or necessary, I guess, mental strength to overcome challenges uh, when they present themselves. Congratulations, Novak, back on top of the world. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Novak Djokovic on his world-beating best and not too far down the rankings is world number six, Stefanos Tsitsipas, who started the week in the Netherlands, speaking with Richard Conley. Well, Stefanos, welcome back to Rotterdam. I think it's your fourth time here already. Um, do you remember what it was like walking in here as an 18-year-old for the first time? You had a wild card. I think it's right. It was your first match at tour level. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about those, those sensations from back in the day. That was my first ATP tour level match against Zofrit Tsonga. Uh, I think I was 17 years old back then. I uh, haven't played much on the Challenger Tour. I was mostly playing ATF uh, Futures and got the opportunity. Richard provided me with a wildcard, which was really big for me at the time. Uh, I got my first experience, first taste of how it is to be competing against the top guys. And uh, from what I remember, so when uh, I actually started really well the match, that's what I remember, played really well. Uh, despite losing and uh, Joe went um, after a couple of days he managed to win the tournament after beating me so uh, I don't know what <laughs> I probably gave him good rhythm <laughs> I'm sure you did yeah um, but do you remember how how it felt to be around the atmosphere with the top guys for the first time I mean it must feel tremendously different now yes I did feel kind of like a superstar kind of going in playing that tournament uh, but I also, I can say I saw myself more, more as a junior because I just finished playing juniors uh, that year and um, I was just excited and trying to, you know, uh, catch up and uh, get the realization, understanding of how they, these players play because I know the level can be, um, it, it is different to what juniors are and obviously challenger tour. So it was a first good experience. How long ago does that 
feel? Because here you are coming in, you know, as the champion from the NITO ATP finals, as the number two seed, as one of the top 10 players in the world. I mean, it, it, in some respects, it must feel like it's a long time ago. In a way, yeah, it does feel like a long time ago. Uh, but it's, you know, in the tour times, time flies so fast, you, don't, you, you barely, you, you cannot, you cannot feel time sometimes. It's just week after week after week. Um, and although it might seem like a long time, but it's not really. It's less than four years, I think. I've played here four times, so uh, it's a it's a process that won't stop until you stop. So I keep learning week by week, and uh, you know I'm improving. I can see it much much uh, different Stefanos. Uh, from the very first time that I played here and uh, the tournament keeps getting better and better and uh, I really hope to be playing here for many more years to come. Last year when you came in you'd made the Australian Open semi-finals and you'd played an event in between then and this as well in Sofia I think. Um, this year do you feel different bodily? Do you feel fresher coming in? Well I do know a bit better. I, I can manage my uh, energy wiser that's how I would describe it. Uh, I know when I need to give and I, I know when I need to just conserve a little bit of energy. So last year there was a moment where I, I did feel exhausted. I was around this period of time. Um, but, you know, I got a bit unlucky at the Australian Open. Um, my opponent really played really well. And uh, I think sometimes your mindset changes. You want to give more. Sometimes you're trying to play a bit more smart so you can con conserve that energy and not give too much, that's unnecessary. Uh, so mostly for me it's like, you know, getting to understand the game better over time and uh, processing certain things and um, coming, you know, to a reali uh, realization what works better for me and how can I do it more effortlessly. You're playing doubles this week as well as the singles, of course. You're playing doubles with Nenad Zimunic, um, who we saw you practicing with yesterday. Is he in reality just a doubles partner or is he a bit more than that? Uh, well, yesterday it felt more than a doubles partner. He's a really nice guy and he uh, gives good advices. Um, he told me he's trying to help anyone, which is really good to have a person like this next to you. Uh, I'm trying to absorb as much as I can from him. He's been on the tour so many years, a very um, wise athlete and uh, he knows when to speak and not. Uh, we partner up together this week in Rotterdam. Uh, I think it's also uh, a good opportunity for me to learn and just share a few things with him. Uh, so far, you know, our cooperation is pretty well. It's going pretty well. I, I, I listen to him. I try to give him, some, give him some feedback so he can understand me better, get to know me better. And do you expect this relationship to continue beyond this week or is it just for Rotterdam? Well, our plans right now are quite short. Uh, we discussed playing only here, but potentially, yeah, maybe in the future as well. Uh, he's been in the number one spots for over more than 50 weeks, and uh, he knows he, he knows his stuff. So mm -hmm. I think uh, he can provide a lot for me, and uh, doubles is always uh, a good way to discover and get to know the game a little bit better. On iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com, this is the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast.
While Sitsipas fell early in Rotterdam, 19-year-old Felix Ogialiassim went all the way to the final one year after reaching his first in Rio. It's been a rapid rise and Jill Krabus has been learning more about the young Canadian by speaking with one of his coaches. Pleased to be joined on ATP Tennis Radio with Guillaume Marx, coach of Felix Ogialiassim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jill. I want to focus, obviously, on your guys' uh, partnership. First of all, congratulations on all the success that you've had. Um, he's just continuously moving up the rankings. What for you has been, what's been going well? What's been the consistent factor for Felix? Uh, I think it's a lot of things that he put in place. Uh, it took time a little bit. We saw la during last year that he was going uh, better and better. Uh, we were working uh, uh, in a team now with my teammate Fred Fontan on, on the on the tennis side, and uh, since last year we were like always saying that we're going right direction. We're gonna see something going on soon, and but you never know when, right? So you just have to 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 wait, be patient. He took confidence on his serve and confidence in his identity. He knows much better how he has to play against the good players to have a chance to beat them and uh, that, that helped a lot. Is there anything, I noticed actually when I was watching him yesterday that it looked like he was taking a little bit more time before each serve. Is that something that you've incorporated? Yes, we've been talking about that time, take time, uh, all, the, all the routines on the breath obviously, like uh, most of the players are, are doing. Uh, yes, he, yeah, you gotta go through that when things don't don't go well. He had the, this tendency like to rush when things were not going well. So we're fighting against that. He's doing that much better now. And you see so often because he's still so young, and you see often that there's so much attention, especially um, if someone's we think is talented or doing really well, has good results. But f and, and some of them don't handle it well. But it seems like Felix has really handled those expectations very well. What, how? What do you feel like has been the factor there uh, I think it's uh, it's I think it's his dedication because uh, because uh, he always it was always like this I have to say it's just getting used to uh, getting to a higher and higher degree of pressure throughout the years because uh, I just remember that he had a lot of, he was breaking records when he was 14 and had, uh, so it's not the best way like to do things you know in, in, in without nobody looking at you everybody was always looking at what he was doing and uh, and he just got used to that and little by little he's always a little bit in the spotlight so i, I guess he had a, he, he gets used to and little by little uh, try to manage the uh, more and more pressure and uh, that's that's this uh, this fact of just getting used to it and being able to play anyway under pressure or to just to keep uh, keep track of what you are doing even when you're under pressure that makes him handling it well but it doesn't mean that it's not difficult it's uh, it's not something easy now do you and, and Frederick together as a team talk to him about this quite a bit as far as how to handle that yes. off court and yes, on court sure. yeah for sure I think it's uh, I think we have to, yeah, we talked about it a lot, and, but the, the, the benchmark is always the same. As long as what we see on the court, the dedication on the court is right, that the energy on the court is right, I mean, you can do stuff and enjoy outside the court and have a lot of uh, duties outside the court to do. 
I mean, it can cause destruction, but if on, co on court it's going well, um, like 90, 99% of the time, and you're still dedicated, I think you're going to go through, you know? If it's the thing starts to go bad on court, you know, you, you're missing more and more practices and stuff, that's when the thing's going to get uh, more and more difficult. That's our benchmark, but... Uh, not easy again. <laughs> now this, this dedication and this passion and poise he shows on the court, do you feel like that's something that can be taught or is that something that naturally comes to Felix? But, you, cannot, you can never, you know, you can never teach 100% of the things to, to, to a player. At, at, at one point you got to have something inside of you, obviously. And then there is a little bit of, of coaching like to show what's, what's good, what's bad, to adjust. But you, you need to have, uh, uh, you know, this fire inside of you, uh, you know, it's not the coach who's going to play. It's the, it's, it's, it's the, it's the player like who's responsible, who's going there. And so you got to have a good base. After that, uh, you, can, you can deal with a lot of uh, problems with the discussions that you have with your player. And if he has a good base, uh, I mean, the, he's going to process the, the things. What tactically and also mentally do you see as a long-term plan for him to, to break that top 10, of course, winning slams? Uh, you know, you have to stay, uh, it's, as you get on top, it's, it, you got to stay simple, but everything gets more complicated to stay simple. But at the end, uh, at, at the end, it's just uh, keep on pushing the the right buttons i mean we are in a process regardless of the ranking it's um, we like uh, with i know felix for a long time now but we started with fred uh, two years ago but we made uh, like a four or five year plan you know it's, and so regardless of the results we have things to work on you know like, like what the, like uh, what would you say? like what uh, every aspect like every aspect, like technically we have things to review all the time and with tactically we have to, uh, things are going pretty well tactically but you have to reinforce always some, some stuff, you have to, there are shots that he can do better, physically he's very young so you have to do a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, practice and prevention so I mean it's everything, we are just uh, having a we are just having some uh, routine, routines and stuff that we have to do uh, w whatever. Uh, if he loses, if he wins, it's the same. We just keep going. I think that's why it carries you on. And I think we still have a lot of, uh, you know, benchmark to, to reach on, in his game. So that's, that's where, what we are focused on. So, so for youngsters, um, you know, young kids that are just starting to play and stuff like that, you had that four or five year plan can you tell us, can you reveal like what was in that plan from the beginning when you saw him at such a young age? It would be difficult like this like to, <laughs> to give you the whole plan, but uh, it's, it, yeah, it's difficult. It's a, it's a lot of points, actually. It's a lot of, it's a lot of points, but I think uh, we've been working uh, a lot on the, on, on the serve. His, his serve has always been uh, something that he had to work on. There is ups and downs with his serve, but lately he's... He got to the to the to the good stats, to the good uh, on, on, on the ATP with with that shot. And for us, it's a it's a good thing because it was one of the points like that was a little bit behind, like two years ago. We found and uh, 
there's a, there has been a lot of tactical and technical adjustment on, on that shot and it's paying off a bit but now it, we need to carry on uh, because sometimes he has drops again and it's for example for the, for this shot it's just um, it's just like technical things that he had to that he had to you know improve and um, and it's it's the same for for every shot and there is still room for improvement every, every single thing yeah well, Guillaume, thanks so much for joining us. I, won't, I know you got to go to practice, so you're ready to go. But um, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it here on ATP Tennis Radio. And best of luck. Merci. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please search the iTunes store for ATP Tennis Radio to leave a review. From Rotterdam to New York and the 2019 champion there, who is quite literally the biggest star in tennis. At six foot 11, Riley Apelka is the joint tallest man ever to play on the ATP Tour. Can you name the player with whom he shares that record? Have a think on that while you listen to his coach, Jay Berger, speaking with Mike Cation. Delighted to be joined by Jay Berger, coach of Riley Opelka. And Riley spoke in Atlanta and said he didn't want to be identified as a serve bot. That was uh, something he said he wanted to eliminate. How have you and Jean-Yves Albonnet worked to make sure he's a little bit more complete? Yeah, I mean, I think Riley, um, you know, when I, you know, I'm on the court with him every day. Uh, he's certainly a capable from the ground. He's an extremely good mover. Um, he actually has very good intangibles. You'll see that. You see it in practice. You see it in matches where he has to has to take one hand off the racket, whether it's on the back inside or switch grips. So, um, you know, certainly we're we're making him a more complete player. We're trying to. He's trying to make himself a more complete player, and uh, and I think every aspect of his game has improved. What do you think has been the biggest jump that he's made over the last two years? Certainly, with his forehand, has improved a lot. I think clarity in his tennis game and in finding a lot more clarity, um, which he takes really ownership of. I mean, this process is working with him, guided a lot by him, as well as, as uh, certainly improvements with his return and, and, and his serve as well. So what is the long-term goal? What, what would a t- complete package for Riley Opelka be? Well, his coaches previous to me, and JY, uh, I've done such a nice job in putting his game together. People like Tom Gullickson, people like Brian Gottfried, people like Diego Moyano and Michael Sell to give him the correct grips, the correct swing shapes. Um, so uh, we're not making wholesale changes on everything, on anything, uh, nor do we have to. Uh, so, so I think it's it's just about getting better every day in every aspect of of the game. Do you remember when you first met Riley Opelka? I do. Yeah, I met Riley probably when he was 10 or 11 uh, at a camp in Daytona Beach, Florida, I believe. And, uh, you know, you could turn around and you could catch him moving quickly every, every so often. He was a big kid uh, back then as well. But, but certainly... Um, certainly a good athlete you were the head of men's tennis for the usta for what was it nine years is that correct nine Closing or ten, on ten years yeah, yeah. um so you got to oversee a lot of this um correct. youthful development of the young americans yes, on the men's I side um, what has impressed you most about riley about francis about taylor's now they're top 50 players yeah and i, and I think you can add michael moe and tommy paul and sure 
McKinsey, McDonald. I mean, uh, there are a lot of them. I mean, first of all, is that I think they're generally nice kids. Um, they have an incredible camaraderie together. As young American players, they spend a lot of time together. They, they authentically uh, want each other to do well. And it's been, it's been really impress, impressive to see how much they've improved, uh, you know, to see improvement over six months when I haven't seen Francis play and, and watch him again and, and, and how, how good they've gotten. How did this coaching situation, though, work for you um, once you did leave that position in 2017? Yeah, so after, after I left the position, I, I worked with, with Jack. Um, I've known Riley for, for a long time. And... Um, and I believe he gave me a call and, and, uh, and knew I was, I was going to be at a club, the club at Ibis, uh, which I'm still at. Um, so I have an interesting job where I work with 88-year-old people, 68-year-old people, 58-year-old people, 18-year-old people, 21-year-old pros, juniors, beginners. Um, you know, and, and I really enjoy all aspects of that. But he gave me a call. Um, you know, and, and uh, we've had a good relationship always, and I've always believed in him, and uh, certainly said I was I was interested in it, and uh, got together, and he moved um, moved into a hotel originally in West Palm Beach uh, in November after the season. We started working, and um, you know, sat down and watched a lot of video, uh, came up with a plan. And, um, and continuing to try to execute that plan. What was that plan? The plan was just, uh, first of all, really for him to really have clarity in the way he wanted to play. Uh, so there's no doubt in what he's going to do with, with most shots. Looking for areas of improvement, you know, some critical areas, and, uh, and making some adjustments to those areas and doing it together. Uh, you know, we kind of have a process where every trip he comes back. Um, usually, on a, on a whenever he gets back, we we usually practice and then have dinner that night together, and and continue to watch matches together and decide, you know, what areas that he would like to improve on and areas that I think he needs to improve on going forward for the next couple months. And that process has seemed to work well. Um, certainly, you know, he certainly had a lot of success, and I really put most of that on him. Mike Cation here for a couple more minutes with Jay Berger, coach for Riley Opelka. You came, uh, obviously, a a fantastic professional career, three ATP titles to your credit. You were a college coach um, for several years as well. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the state of college tennis right now and and how um, you've seen some players being able to transition to the pros. Yeah, I think uh, certainly, you know, for, for those that go to college and there are certainly some great coaches out there in college tennis. You know, it, it's it's certainly uh, a pathway for players to to go through. I think it will continue. Have another great one in JJ Wolf. Um, you know, uh, I still think the majority of the players are going to come without going to college. I'm not sure that's going to change, but uh, but it certainly can be done. And you're seeing it obviously with. John Isner and Kevin Anderson and Cameron Norrie, um, looking at players that have done it more recently, McKinsey McDonald, and uh, you know certainly J.J. Wolf is, is another great one, Chris Eubanks, players like that. It's um, such an interesting time in our sport when you have some guys who are peaking well into their 30s, um, that, that, that decision at 17, 18 about whether to go to college or go pros is a, a little bit different than, say, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah, I, w- I would say that you know there are four or five things that have to be in place for players looking to make that 
that decision, first of all, is that you have to have a, a long-term plan. You have to have four or five years um, of a great plan uh, going forward. You have to have support, you know, um, financial support. You have to have a level. Uh, you have to have maturity. And if you have all those things, which, which a lot of players do, or a lot of players don't, some players do, um, you know, it, it is, it's a very personal decision, um, you know, but, and a difficult one. You mentioned Jack, that being Jack Sock, uh, a little while ago. I uh, have. Uh, tell me your thoughts on Jack as he's starting to progress back in, into professional tennis again. You know, somebody that um, I've known for many years. I've had some incredible experiences with him. I was with him when he won two medals at, uh, at the Olympics. You know, I was with him when he won his first pro tournament in the Futures. Um, hmm. I was with him when he won his first Grand Slam in, uh, in, in mixed doubles and, and certainly in Paris and, uh, and at the O2. And, uh, look, he, he's a winner. He's a great player. Um, there's no doubt in my mind, uh, really, if he puts his mind to it, which I think he will, um, he's going to be back. I mean, he, he's a, he, he is a winner. He's won all through the juniors. He's won in the pros. He's wins in doubles and, um, and has a level of confidence in himself that, um, you know, that he just needs to get out there and needs to be healthy, and he, he's going to be just fine. He's, he's, a, he's a heck of a tennis player. It is amazing, though, what confidence can do, and once you have it, you can just click on like that. Yeah, no, he, he's, he's a little different that um, I haven't seen too many people that can, can gain confidence so quickly, you know, where, um, you know, even if you look at the, the trip or you look at his last time he was injured where he had surgery on, um, I believe, something in his ab, and he came back and made the round of 16 of, uh, of Indian Wells. So it, it, I think it takes a lot less for him to gain confidence than – I know it did for me. So, <laughs> you know what? He, he's a fun player to watch. Um, certainly a, a super talented player, and, and, I, and I think he's going to get it back for sure. And before I let you go, um, Riley Opelka is quite the fashion maven. He is. Um, you know, you've, you've got a little bit of a new balance action, some Lacoste. I'm, I'm surprised he lets you go without the perfect matching outfit. Mr. Well, Jay Berger. I thought I looked great, but <laughs> Mike, I, you know, kind of disappointed that you don't think so. Well, uh, he he is. If one thing is out of place, he seems to notice. He is. That. I tell I tell you, I've definitely learned a lot about food from him. <laughs> That's a lot his about dad, trucks. <laughs> a lot about trucks. I ate at three Michelin star restaurants in London, which I've never eaten at, <laughs> and I certainly have learned a lot more about fashion than I think I even wanted to learn. But uh, no, he's an interesting kid and, and certainly a lot of fun to, to travel with. Jay, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, Appreciate Mike. it. No problem. Jay Berger, coach of American Riley Apelka, who at six foot eleven is the same height as Evo Karlovich. While events in Rotterdam, New York, and Buenos Aires are coming to a close, the Rio Open is only just getting started, and that is where I found top seed Dominic Team, who we'll hear from shortly. But first, history is being made in Rio, with electronic line calling being used for the first time on clay on the ATP Tour. And not a moment too soon, according to the tournament director here, Louis Carvalho. Yes, I'm ready. I mean, uh, I fought hard for that to happen in Rio, for us to be the first tournament ever to use uh, electronic line calling. 
We're very excited. We we want to see how it works out. Uh, you know, if players really like it, if they don't like it, how how they react to the calls, right? Because there's probably going to be some controversy about you know the calls, and I love it. And I hope uh, that the players uh, you know get along with it, and we can uh, implement the system for the other events as well. Why did you want it? Because I like technology, I think technology is present in our everyday lives and uh, you know when I look at the TV and I saw the hard court and the grass court events using it, I thought it was a, such a, dis a disadvantage for us not to have not only the system but also the, all the data that comes with it. So uh, we're happy that now we at least we're on the same level as the other events and uh, we can benefit from this technology. You mentioned the system and the data. How much work and, and what is the technical solution? Is it uh, hundreds of cameras? Yeah, it's uh, 40 cameras on court, uh, lots of cables because they're all connected. Uh, but, you know, Fox 10 has uh, a great team. Uh, their setup has been pretty smooth. Uh, and uh, we'll see how it plays out, right? It's the first time officially, so it's the first time also we're learning how to, how to connect all the dots, how we spread the, the data around the, the site and through the public and to the players. So uh, we'll learn as we go, but we're very excited with them on board. Louis Carvalho looking forward to the seventh edition of the Rio Open, where his top seed is Australian Open runner-up Dominic Team. I spoke with him on Saturday. Dominic, welcome to Rio, first of all. Um, congratulations on a fantastic start to 2020, your best ever start to a year. How do you feel that that performance in Melbourne has teed you up for the rest of the year? I feel great about the performance in Melbourne. It was uh, too hell of a week, uh, beating three top ten guys and then losing to Novak 6-4 in the fifth, of course, uh, huge disappointment, but at the same time it was such a good tournament and losing five sets against such a huge champion, it's of course tough in the, in the beginning, but after some time to reflect, I mean, it was a great tournament, great start to the season and of course I tried to continue in that great form now. And what have you done since? I was going home, um, fortunately pulled out of Buenos Aires, had some rest. I mean, if you go that deep in a Grand Slam, it's always very demanding physically, mentally, so definitely I needed some good rest. And yeah, yesterday I arrived here in Rio, I'm ready. It's my first time on clay since Kitzbühel, always uh, love coming back on that surface. So I guess I'm regenerated uh, quite well and, and ready for next week. I was going to ask you that. On paper, it seems an odd decision to come here and play on clay between the Australian Open and Indian Wells. Um, why do you like doing that? Why do you like getting your, your, your socks dirty? Um, I mean, I like the surface, of course. I really like also South America. It's a completely different atmosphere than Australia or Europe or, or States. I really like coming here and did it also the last three out of four years and have great experiences. I won here, won Buenos Aires twice, so it's, it's very easy for me to come back. And also for me, it's, it's no problem at all to switch on clay for one or two weeks and then switch back to hardcore. It's coming on clay, it's like uh, coming home. You also have a South American coach now for a year, um, pretty much a year to the day almost since you started working with Nicolas Massou. Um, Give us a sense of how you feel that relationship is working and, and still you know, making you a better player. Yeah, we started uh, last year in Rio, actually, Buenos Aires, Rio, and worked out amazingly well. Uh, well, as everybody can see, he's a great coach, great person, um, very enjoyable to work with him, to 
spent time on tour with him as well and of course he made me much better player I think I, I did a great development uh, on my game in, in this one year since since Rio 19 so I'm, I'm super happy and can't wait to keep it going like that and just finally um, you're an all-court player now obviously but your roots still very much in clay historic event here in Rio first time at electronic line calling for clay um, what do you make of that and, and how do you think the players in general are, are responding are, are going to find that I think for me it's a good idea because in, in tennis it's it's pretty clear and pretty obvious either ball is out or ball is good so if there's electronic help I'm, I'm very happy about it because there are no doubts anymore and I think it's nowadays also good to have it on clay you're listening to the ATP tennis radio podcast that is it for this week for all the latest news from here in Rio as well as Marseille Rotterdam New York and beyond head to atptour.com remember we'll have our first live commentaries of the season from the ATP Masters 1000s in Indian Wells and Miami both of those next month you can listen to ATP Tennis Radio on TuneIn or direct through atptour.com. And don't forget, you can watch all the action live too on Tennis TV. I'm Seb Lozier. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast. If you have, leave us a review on iTunes. We'll have another packed full of exclusive interviews next week. For now, though, thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. There's plenty of live action during March on ATP Tennis Radio. Starting in the Californian desert, we'll bring you every day of the BMP Paribas Open in Indian Wells before moving to the all-new venue at the Hard Rock Stadium in Miami for the Miami Open. Presented by Itawu. That's live coverage of the ATP Tour. And there is the roar for Juan Martín Del Potro. On ATP Tennis Radio.